church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean, and it is great to be back with you this week. I pray that your week has been good. I know mine's been busy, as always, and I'm sure you can appreciate that. Well, tonight, we are going to finish up Chapter 2 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises, once again, my all-time favorite Scott Hahn book. And tonight, we have some particularly juicy material to dive into, the Sabbath, uh, the Garden of Eden, the creation of man, Adam. So there's a lot of material here that we are just going to dive right into. But before we do that, as always, we like to begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. All glorious and wondrous God of creation and all that is before us, our very lives exist because you so willed it, dear Father. And so we come before you humbly, begging you for grace and mercy tonight that you will open our eyes to see your glorious creation of mankind in the way in which you intended it to be. May you send us the Holy Spirit to guide us in our conversation. But tonight, Father, I especially want to pray for all those who are struggling with cancer, all those who are, who are standing at death's door seeking your grace. Father, strengthen them. Give them resolve. Help them to see in their suffering the beauty of redemption through pain, offering their, their pain up and uniting it with Christ on the cross, your Son, who died for us. I want to especially pray for my father-in-law, whom tonight I heard has cancer. God, may you strengthen him. God, may you save him. I pray for them, all who suffer tonight. And I pray to our Blessed Mother that she will never cease to intercede for all of them. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Well, bringing us into the show tonight was Curtis Stephan and his song, Live Out Love. For more information on him and a link to his site, please stop by my website at www.catholichack.com. That's all one word, catholichack.com. Well, as I said tonight, we are going to finish up chapter two of, of A Father Who Keeps His Promises and we have some great, great material to get into. If you are not familiar with this book, then you haven't been listening to the show very long because I keep ranting about it continuously. And I highly recommend that you pick up this book and you can do so off of my website. Um, just contact me if you can't find it, the link on the site, but it's catholichack at gmail.com. Tonight, we are going to be getting into the Sabbath. We left off from last week talking about those six days of creation leading up to that seventh day where God rested. And we talked about the whether or not Genesis was to be taken literally or figuratively. And we had to find our way through that uh, maze there to see what God intended us to see. And so if you haven't heard last week's show, if you weren't around for last week's show, stop by the website, catholichack.com. There on the right-hand side under content channels, you'll see Behold the Man. Click on that, and you'll see last week's episode, Genesis 1, Fact or Fiction. Listen to that. That'll get you caught up. All right, the Sabbath. Now, this is uh, starting on page 50 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises is where Dr. Hahn starts to go into this material. It is, again, very, very good stuff. What's important for us to understand here are, are a couple of key issues. Sabbath was not made, was or actually, Sabbath was not made for man, but man, or actually man was not made for Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. See how I twist that up? Because the Jews in the time of Christ, when he walked the earth before his passion and resurrection, they also had it sort of mixed up. You remember all those stories about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, that man with a withered hand? You know, and Jesus asked them, you know, you who will untie your, your donkey, you untie your, your, your oxen, you know, you'll do some sort of work somehow on the Sabbath, but you won't let me heal this man. And Jesus tells us in Mark's gospel, uh, chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So that's the first key principle, that when God rested from all he had done and proclaimed it good, that he creates the Sabbath for rest. This also, in a very practical way, reminds us that our labors serve a purpose, just as our God's labor had a purpose, bringing creation uh, forth. But we don't live to work. We might work to live, but not the other way around. And sometimes, actually, a lot of times, don't we get that twisted? Even myself, I work full-time in Catholic evangelization ministry, and yet I work like a, a dog sometimes. And what will I do? I will neglect not only my spiritual well-being, but I will neglect my first vocation, which is my wife and my kids, my family. And don't we do that sometimes? So the very first principle here is that we need to have the priority of what Sabbath intends for us, is to rest into God. That's what we do when we go to Mass on Sunday, before we start our work week. We begin by going and receiving God himself, truly present there in the Blessed Sacrament, and that we might have life within us, that we might go into the, to the, into the world and try to bring souls back. We are sent at the end of every Mass. So Sabbath is a very real principle for our lives today. 
All right. The next principle is what God was actually doing was he was creating an oath. He was swearing an oath. He's creating a covenant. This is the first covenant, which is what this book does, goes through all the covenants. This is the first one. And God creates a covenant with all of creation and mankind. And you can see more of this on page 51. I'll read you a paragraph here. Dr. Hahn says, Another reason why Moses described God as setting apart the seventh day at the end of his creative work may be related to the ancient Israelite practice of covenant oath swearing. The Hebrew word for oath swearing, sheva, is based on the word for seven. In Hebrew, to swear an oath means literally to seven oneself. Since a covenant is formed by oath swearing, which means sevening oneself, it may not, it may not be unreasonable to see God's God covenanting himself to the cosmos in the very act of creating it, deliberately in a sevenfold way. In any case, it's significant that the Sabbath was understood by the Jews as the day for Israel to remember God's covenant with them and creation. They did so in prayer and worship to renew the covenant oath that God made with them, a sacramental family. Now, I want to go on here and just show another parallel. In in the first uh, couple of centuries, we see many early Christian writings, one of which, actually, this is not even Christian writing, this is a pagan writing, actually. Pliny the Younger was a Roman governor uh, of a Near East province, and he was sort of conflicted on how to handle these Christians that were popping up everywhere. Um, were they to persecute them, arrest them, kill them? What, what were they supposed to do? He wasn't sure. So he wrote a letter to the emperor in Rome, his boss, and asked him, you know, okay, look, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here, but, you know, I'm, I'm capturing these Christians. I'm torturing them to find out kind of what's going on. And, uh, you know, what do you want me to do? How am I supposed to handle this? In that letter to Trajan, his boss, he actually describes a little snippet into the uh, the mass there in the earliest of the earliest days of the church, like the second century, second third century, and um, he actually says that they would they would uh, and he uses a, a Latin word sacramentum that they would sacramentum themselves. Now I'm I'm using that Latin word because it's very important. That Latin word means to swear an oath. And so he's describing the mass and from his pagan perspective, not truly understanding what was going on because he actually he actually bring, brings up the point of common food, which is the bread and the wine, which we know is not too common. But from his pagan perspective, he thought it was pretty common. And so he actually mentions the word sacramentum, that they are swearing an oath there. And he actually points out that their oath is somewhat harmless. But how, how, how outstanding of a parallel is that? That here in the... In the creation account, at the very beginning of our Bible, of Scripture, God is sevening himself. He's swearing an oath with creation. And yet we're doing the same thing through our sacraments, sacramentum. Just a very powerful um, parallel there. Now, let's move on. The next big point that I want to make is, and I wish I had more time here, but the show's only half hour. The next big point I want to make is that creation needs to be seen properly. 
When we read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we have this mindset. As I mentioned last week, we often read scripture like 21st century Westerners, specifically in my case, 21st century American. You know, it's just we read it from our own biased perspective. That has to go out the window. We must start to read scripture from the, the intent that the author intended us to get. Specifically, if we started to look at this through first century Jewish eyeglasses, there's a lot more detail there than we can actually get our, get our hands around. For example, it's like going from DVD format to Blu-ray format. Blu-ray has a lot more detail and brings the, the picture out to become more vivid. The same could be said if we start to research um, the scriptures from a first century Jewish perspective. We would see a whole lot more detail. Now, I say all that to say we need to look at creation as a cosmic temple. How do we say that? Well, if you look at, and this is wonderfully and masterfully brought out on page 52 of chapter 2 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises, Scott Hahn goes on to show that if you look at the narratives of the creation and compare and contrast it to the narrative of the commands God gave Moses in the wilderness to create the tabernacle, and compare and contrast creation to how King Solomon brought about his temple, you will see that the ancient, ancient Israelites understood the creation narrative as God creating a temple. God creating a temple. Very powerful. For example, uh, Scott Hahn says here, quote, The account of creation teaches the most fundamental truth about the world, that it was formed to be a holy place for God's indwelling presence and man's priestly worship and sacrifice. He goes on to say, When God instructed Moses about the tabernacle, see Exodus 25 and 31, he spoke directly ten times. The Lord said to Moses, and in Genesis 1, God spoke the creative word ten times, let there be. Also, the first six days of creation bear a striking resemblance to the building and blessing of the tabernacle. Now, so that's comparing and contrasting Moses' tabernacle with the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. And, he, and Scott's got an excellent little chart there where he compares and contrasts specific statements. For example, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's Genesis 1.31. Now, you compare and contrast that to um, Exodus chapter 39, verse 43, where Moses saw the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded it. Very, very similar type of wording. And oh, that's just one example. There's several here you can look at where we're actually shown that it really goes in line that Moses was was sort of recreating that 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 Genesis one account by building the tabernacle. That's why we look at all of the cosmos as a temple. And we're going to narrow that field here in one minute down to the Garden of Eden. But before I do that, I want to show you this one pattern with King Solomon on page 53. He says, quote, a similar pattern is evident in the biblical account of the construction of Solomon's temple, which he rushed to complete in seven years and chose to dedicate it in the seventh month during the Feast of Tabernacles, which lasted exactly seven days. To top it off, Solomon's prayer of dedication was composed of seven petitions. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrates what? It's a remembrance of 
God tabernacling with the Israelites in their booths in the wilderness. God's presence with the people of Israel. Usually celebrated when? At harvest time. Bringing in the abundance of the harvest. Kind of like the manna that came down from heaven every day. Well, we can see that fulfilled in the New Testament with Jesus Christ. Because when we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with our Lord, when he comes and he tabernacles among us, taking on flesh, that's in John's Gospel, chapter 1. When he comes down, he tabernacles, he takes on flesh. And what is he? The true bread come down from heaven, John 6. So again, very powerful parallels that exist here that we really need to dive in deeper on. Now, so we look at all of creation as the temple. Now, if you look at, for example, anything about King Solomon's temple or even King Herod's temple, you'll know that there were different portions of the temple that had uh, greater significance. You went to from the widest part of the temple that was really set up for uh, Gentiles to come and worship because the temple is the one true God's presence on earth. It was meant for all of mankind to come and to worship. And so the outer part was meant for the Gentiles. And as the cl closer you get, then Jews, but then you get further in, it's, you know, uh, all the way to priests. And then finally, in the Holy of Holies there, you see what? The high priest, only the high priest, one time a year could go into the Holy of Holies there and offer sacrifice before the actual presence of the Lord God. So we need to look at that from the perspective of Genesis and looking at the cosmos, where we see all of the cosmos being that temple with different parts. Now, focusing all the way in now to the Holy of Holies, we can now look at that as the Garden of Eden. So this is a fundamental understanding of how the early Israelites, how they interpreted Genesis, how they looked at it. They, when they were creating their tabernacle in the wilderness, when they were creating the, the, the temple there under Solomon, they did so thinking just like Genesis, that this is a new creation. And we'll see that actually brought out and fulfilled in Jesus Christ here in a minute. Now, moving on. There, now Scott likes to, he likes to compare and contrast um, Elohim to Yahweh, because see, a lot of folks, and you've probably heard this yourself, a lot of folks have said, well, you know, the difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they're two completely different stories. How many times have you heard that? I've heard that more times than I can count. Two completely separate, independent uh, stories of creation. And they sort of cast this doubt of negativity on it as if it loses credibility because they're not the same account. Well, I, I submit that that's not a good understanding of what's going on here. And that's what Dr. Hahn is trying to do in this next section, showing the difference between Elohim and Yahweh. Now, these are the names of God, the proper names of God. In Genesis chapter 1, the name of God is Elohim. That's the Hebrew name, Elohim. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, the name changes. It goes from Elohim to Yahweh. Now, what's the difference? Well, it's like saying, well, I'm a director at fullness of truth. When I'm when I when I leave here and I go to work every morning, my kids say goodbye to me in the morning. You know, they say, "Dad, you going to work?" "Yes, I'm going to work." Now, when I'm at work, I'm the director of Fullness of Truth Catholic Evangelization Ministries. When I come home, my kids call me daddy. You see the difference? In Genesis chapter 1, God is referred to properly as Elohim. Why? Because he is creating. That is what he does. He is the creator. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, he's referred to as Yahweh. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 2, man 
comes forth from the dust. God breathes life into his nostrils. And God is Father. He is Abba. He is Daddy. It's much more personal. He places this man into the Holy of Holies there in the Garden of Eden, and he becomes his Father. It is far more personal than Elohim. Elohim is what he does. Yahweh is what he is, who he is. Very, very impactful. And he actually says this, page 54, quote, Elohim evokes the infinite power of the Creator while Yahweh reflects God's covenant love. Just as Jesus himself in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, another garden which we'll, we'll get deeper into as we go along here, it refers to the Father as Abba. Father, Daddy, very personal, very, very personal. So it's very important there that we look at that not that the the creation account in Genesis 1 is just so different than the creation account in Genesis 2. No, they're meant to complement one another. That's the intent here. It's complementarity, not differences. So we need to change our mindset a little bit there and look deeper into this. Now, <laughs> This is getting into some more of that really meaty material that I was referring to. Okay, if there's a temple, then there must be a holy of holies. And if there is a holy of holies, then there must be a high priest. And that's what we're going to get into. Now, as far as the holy of holies, a couple of things here that um, are very important. If you look at in 1 Corinthians, in uh, chapter 11, St. Paul gets into... Uh, talking about purgatory, actually, where he he actually gives us the temple as the analogy by which we can understand um, purgatory. He starts off by saying at the outer, at the outside there at the altar where they 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 create a fire out of wood, straw, and and the stubble, and it burns up. And then as we move further into the temple, we find uh, more and more precious materials, building materials. And finally, you end up, you know, because you got silver and you got jewels and all kinds of stuff, and you finally end up in the Holy of Holies. There, what do you have? Gold, pure gold. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, we're actually told that there are there is gold there in the Garden of Eden. We're actually told that there's also, um, you know, stones, precious stones. And so these things are very significant that their presence is there and we that we see them further on down in King Solomon's temple there and even in Moses' tabernacle, the pure gold, the, the, the most precious metals, the most precious building materials was reserved for the Holy of Holies there. That's very significant for us. All right, so now let's before we get into that any further, I want to talk about the high priest. And if it sounds like I'm rushing, it's because I am. There's a lot of really juicy material here, and time is limited. So the high priest, if we have a temple, if we have a, a, a holy of holies, we must have a priest, a high priest, in fact. That priest was Adam. Now, Adam very specifically was given a he was given a command, a charge in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. God said that he was to keep and protect the garden. Now, very important here because uh, the two Hebrew words used here in conjunction with one another are abudah and shamar. Very, very important why? Because the the other place where these two Hebrew words come together or in the Pentateuch, are used actually in Numbers chapter 3, verse 7 through 8, chapter 8, verse uh, 26, and chapter 18, verses 5 through 6, where? where the Levitical priests were given their tasks to serve in the tabernacle, specifically around the altar. They are to keep and protect it, Abudah and Shamar. This is a Levitical priesthood 
serving in the temple, in the tabernacle, in this case, in Numbers. They're serving at the altar of God. This is very important for us, because when we, when we look at that and we look backwards towards Genesis, we actually see, given the fact that all of creation is a, a cosmic temple and the Garden of Eden is the Holy of Holies, we see Adam being charged with a priestly duty. He's being charged as the high priest. Now, here are some... Um, actually, you ever heard of the Targums? Now, the Targums are very, very fascinating. The Targums are the oral tradition of the readings and of the uh, synagogue from before the time of Christ. You see, because so many Jews lived in the diaspora, they lived outside of Palestine. They, because of all of the conflict that the Israelites went through, through the many years, the, the um, being off into Babylon for 70 years and just being persecuted by so many surrounding nations that many of them lived like in, in Egypt, for example, or they lived up in Greece. They lived elsewhere. Because of that, very few of the Israelites actually spoke the Hebrew or they understood Hebrew as much as they understood Aramaic. Now, so when you're at synagogue on Saturday and on Sabbath and they're proclaiming the Torah, they do so in Hebrew. Now, what they had was they had an interpreter there who would actually interpret from the Hebrew into the Aramaic so that the folks there at the synagogues could understand. Well, over time, this became an oral tradition of those readings. They're called the Targums. You can Google this or you can come to my website and you get a link to them. Now, this is what the Targums said. This is very fascinating stuff because when you look at the Targums in some key places, there's detail added there that's just not there when you read sacred scripture and the translations that you are not have. For example, in the charge that God gives to Adam, making him a priest, you know, to keep and protect it, here's what the Targum says. Here's their translation. Quote, and the Lord God took the man from the mountain of worship where he had been created and made him dwell in the garden of Eden to do service in the law and to keep its commandments. Isn't that fascinating to, to do service in the law and to keep the commandments? To, that doesn't sound more like gardening as much as it does like a priest who is who's serving the law and keeping its commandments. So very once again, very, very fascinating stuff. Now, the Garden again, the Garden of Eden is looked on as the Holy of Holies. Here's a couple of great parallels to bring that sort of out. In Genesis chapter 3, we see how God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. That's God's very presence there in the Garden of Eden. Kind of like in the tabernacle where, where the cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud, God's presence among the people of Israel was made present there in the Holy of Holies. Kind of like on that cloud came and made its presence in King Solomon's temple in the Holy of Holies. It was in that inner sanctuary where God's presence was made known. So you see the same, th same thing in all three places, in the Garden of Eden, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and in King Solomon's Holy of Holies. Okay. Now, the cherubim, we all know from the end of Genesis chapter 3, which we're going to get into greater detail uh, in the next couple of weeks, um, there was a fiery sword wielding cherubim there to protect the entrance, which was in the east, by the way, the same way you entered the tabernacle and the King Solomon's temple, always from the east. But that fiery cherubim, cherubim is reminiscent to the cherubim King Solomon used to decorate the, the entryway into the inner sanctuary of the temple. So another link between the Garden of Eden and the Holy of Holies in King Solomon's temple. 
There's the tree of life. We all know of the tree of life, which Adam and Eve ate from. A lot of scholars believe that the, the menorah candle stand was looked on as uh, the tree of life, as being a stylized, symbolic tree of life there in not only the, the tabernacle, but also King Solomon's temple. Now, the water that ran through the Garden of Eden, we're told in Genesis 2 that there was rivers running through the temple. Now, this is very fascinating stuff. Why? Because if you look at Ezekiel chapter 47, you'll see a prophecy of how waters would run, would process from under the altar in the temple, under the doorpost, and out like living water. Now, when you skip forward to St. John's Gospel, and if I had more time, I'd actually read all these verses. I'll post them on my website, catholichack.com. You actually see that there um, in, in Genesis, sorry, John chapter 2, what is Jesus? He's confronted by the priests and the Pharisees and all that because he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And they say, what? We've been building this thing for 40 years. How can you raise it up in three days? Because they didn't understand he was talking about his body, not the building. And then you fast forward to the cross. What happens on the cross? But when he, the spears pierced his side there on the tree of life in a garden, you know, what happens? Water and blood come forth. He is the temple. So we see in the Garden of Eden, water running through it, the rivers running through it. We see in King so in Ezekiel 47 that uh, underneath the, the temple would be waters of living water, a river of living water. And there on the cross, waters you know, running through it. So we see lots of parallels here, and there's so much more I could mention, but not enough time. So we've got to end it there, but the Bottom line here is Adam was to keep and to protect it. So did Adam keep and protect it? Does he protect the garden and all who inhabit that garden, namely his wife, from intruders? Well, we're going to talk about that next week. Wow. Whew. What a show. A lot of material. Couldn't get into everything I wanted to, but... Until next time, I hope you enjoyed the show. Please stop by the website, www.catholichack.com, for more information. And uh, leave me a review on iTunes. I could really use it. Well, may God richly bless you. God bless. From the Catholic Underground. <laughs>